0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry.
1: When I was at the uh, University of Louisville, I actually was a graduate assistant. And the professor that I worked for was a Jewish rabbi. And my singular task as assistant was to trace the history of anti-Semitism and then to record it into a computer. And he argued that Christianity is inherently anti-Semitic. And of course the long history of persecution of Jews may make it seem that this is the case. But I'm going to argue today that this is a misunderstanding, but we do need to take into consideration this history. It must be acknowledged that among the early church fathers, there was already developing a kind of anti-Jewish rhetoric. Certainly in the Crusades, that Jews, along with Muslims, would be targeted. In 1215, Pope Innocent III issued in the Fourth Lateran Council that Jews had to wear distinctive dress and that Christians should be preferred for public office. He says it would be altogether too absurd that a blasphemer of Christ would exercise authority over Christians. Probably the place that anti-semitism occurs most consistently, though, is in Germany. And as we know, it will culminate then in the Holocaust, in which the German Third Reich attempted to exterminate Jews. And of course, before we let ourselves off the hook here, the United States, even during this time when Jews were trying to immigrate into the United States, The United States was also known for its anti-Semitism and was turning away Jews. But maybe the most evil period in history, the Germans would murder some six million Jews, and we can trace Nazi anti-Semitism specifically to the Protestant Reformation and Martin Luther. In 1543, Luther published On the Jews and their Lies in which he says the Jews are a base whoring people that is no people of God and their boast of lineage circumcision and law must be accounted as filth. They are full of the devil's feces which they wallow in like swine. The synagogue was a defiled bride yes, an incorrigible whore and an evil slut, set fire to their synagogues or schools. Jewish houses should be razed and destroyed, and Jewish prayer books and Talmudic writings, in which such idolatry, lies, cursing, and blasphemy are taught, should be taken from them. In addition, their rabbis should be forbidden to teach on pain of loss of life and limb, And Luther urged that safe conduct on the highways for Jews would be abolished completely. And that all cash and treasure of silver and gold be taken from them. This sounds a lot like what Hitler is going to implement. And Luther also seems to advocate murder of the Jews. He says we are at fault in not slaying them. Hitler simply uses Luther's original concepts in handling what is called the Jewish problem, and he put them into action. During Kristallnacht of 1938, the Nazis are going to carry out Luther's program. They burned thousands of synagogues, they desecrated Torah scrolls, and they murdered Jews. The creation of ghettos allowed the Nazis to break into Jewish houses and destroy their property. It restricted their mobility and travels. And new laws constrained the profession of Jews. They could not, in fact, be Christian clergymen. And, of course, this is one of the things that the confessing church in Germany is going to protest. Concentration camps forced all Jewish boys and girls and men to work. And so it's as if Hitler were reading Luther and following Luther's recommendations and we know he was. They do indeed burn their synagogues, they break into their houses, they take away their prayer books, they forbid rabbis to teach, they abolish escort and travel, they prohibit usury. Once Luther's initial steps were followed, of course Hitler takes it even further. He prohibited Jews from marrying or having relations with Aryans. He moved Jews into designated ghettos. He sterilized those he deemed inferior, including Jews, those with mental handicaps or certain physical handicaps. And he exterminated all life that is unworthy, including that of the Jews. Now, anti-Semitism is not simply a German problem, but it spread all over the world including to this country. But unfortunately, the primary means of the spread of anti-Semitism is Christianity and a Christian theology which pits Christian against Jew, pits the Old Testament against the New Testament, pits grace against works, or in short, just pits Christianity against Judaism. I believe this is not simply a failure, you know, a moral failure, an ethical failure, a sin, but it's a profound theological misunderstanding. And that's the significance of this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2 to 4. And this is just one example that we could take of many. Paul says, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Paul identifies Christ with the rock in Sinai. And Paul is equating Jewish experience with Christian experience. He's equating Jewish spirituality with Christian spirituality. And he's equating the rock of Israel. He says that is Christ. Matthew will do the same thing. Actually, we could just go through the books of the New Testament. But Matthew says that Christ is Israel. He equates Christ with Israel. In Matthew 2 15, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. The time, space, and place that Jesus occupies, according to the writers of the New Testament, it's the place of Israel. We understand who Jesus is in light of the Hebrew Scriptures. He is the true temple, He is true sacrifice. As Jesus says about himself before Abraham was, I am. The Jewish Sabbath, the day of rest, is according to the writer of Hebrews, an ongoing reality encompassing all of human history. And Jesus is the door into this seventh day. The early church fathers will continue to identify Christ directly with Adam, Moses, Joshua, so that the Jesus is understood in light of the Hebrew Scriptures. I think it's of doctrinal significance that the division which develops between Judaism and Christianity is a very slow division, in that Christianity was originally understood to occupy the same time and space and place and Scriptures And maybe even accord Torah the same primacy, such that Christians meet in synagogues. We know that Paul will continually go to the synagogues first in his missionary journeys. We know that many of the Christian gatherings were at first, you know, in Jerusalem, it may have been in the temple, and then in the dispersion, it was in the synagogues. Magnus Zetterholm argues that even the name Christian, which arises in Antioch, Antioch was a place in which he claims there may have been up to 20 to 30 synagogues, and the designation may have come from the Christians or from their fellow Jews as saying, well, this is the synagogue where the Christ followers meet. And as Zetterholm writes, that Christianity eventually became a non-Jewish separate religion does not mean that this separation must have already taken place by the first time we hear the term Christians, or Christian. In fact, he says the sources actually indicate the opposite. But even to describe Jews and Christians in this fashion, it may already be anachronistic. That is, if Jew is thought to specify a particular religion. We know there were many sects of Jews. Jewish scholar Daniel Boyerun raises the question whether these are even you know, Jewish and Christian categories which existed during the Second Temple period. He refers to the Greek term Jewish or euadios, and he says it simply means Judean or Jew. And it meant something like the ways of the Jews. I immediately thought of the case of Japan. You know, we have the word Shinto, but Shinto just means the way of the gods. Japanese is not really a designation that identifies some sort of unified people until we get to the Meiji Restoration. You could say the same thing about Hinduism in India. That's a British designation for those people in the subcontinent of India. And so to imagine Jewish designates a religion with a singular and agreed-upon essence is anachronistic, and it's mistaken at several levels. That is that Judaism is an open term, and talking about the complex rituals, the practices, the beliefs and values, the political loyalties that varied Certainly they had an allegiance, you know, to the people of Israel, but they're really, Boyer, and claims, is not a religion called Judaism. And in turn, most, if not all, of the ideas and practices of the Jesus movement of the first century and the beginning of the second century, and maybe later, can be safely understood, he says, as part of the ideas and practices that we understand to be Judaism. Judaism is not a closed set of ideas or a unified understanding as Jews were broken into these dividing factions and Christians were, as we see in the day of Pentecost then, immediately included among the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, the Essenes, all of whom were in disagreement about the essence of Judaism. We really don't know quite what the division was between Sadducees and Pharisees. It may be that Sadducees were literalists, interpreting Torah in a more strict fashion. The Pharisees wanted to interpret through tradition. And it's quite plausible that the Galilean Jews would reject any such ideas. Or the Zealots and the Essenes would reject what the Pharisees and the Sadducees accepted. I think we can trace this, in fact, to what Paul is saying. That Paul describes Judaism as lacking an essence for the Jews. In 2 Corinthians 3.15, he says, Their minds were made dull, for to this day, the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed, Because only in Christ is it taken away. Same thing in Matthew. That Christ, Jesus in Matthew, he describes a a kind of hollow center to Judaism. He's referring actually not just to Judaism, but he's referring specifically to the scribes and Pharisees. In Matthew 23:27, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to be people that are righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. What's wrong with them? Is it that they follow the law? No, Jesus is saying your problem is you don't follow the law. He says, listen to the Pharisees and the scribes. He says, they do indeed sit upon the seat of Moses. And so you must listen to them, but don't do as they do. In other words, they're emptying out the law by not doing the law. Christ is described in many places as filling up. You know, this is Matthew's. Phrase that he is the fulfillment, the pleroma of the law. And the scribes and Pharisees are emptying out the law. And so the problem is not legalism so much, but a kind of active negation of the law by not doing it. Jesus has no problem with Jewishness. Jesus has no problem with the law. What he has a problem with is they're emptying it out. And that's the mystery, you know, around which Judaism or the scribes and Pharisees, that it kind of revolves around this. That is that the letter takes precedent over the doing. Jesus says the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. Jesus is not abrogating the law. He's not ending the law. But do not do according to their deeds. This is Matthew 23, 2-3. They say things and do not do them. Instead of doing the law, the scribes and Pharisees are caught up in this kind of outward show that misses the heart of the law. And so there's this absent center. But of course, this is not just the Jewish problem. This is the human problem. Right? Right? The prototypical universal problem, the problem with culture, religion, the problem with each of us individually, is that we do not cohere on the outside and the inside. What we say, we don't do, and what we do, does not con- it's not consistent with what we say. This hypocrisy is the very definition of sin. And so Christ is not a disjunction or discontinuation of the law. He's not a discontinuation of the Hebrew scriptures. As I pointed out last week in Matthew, you know, this is true in John. They both begin their gospel describing how Jesus is the fulfillment of Genesis. Here is the true origin, which duplicates the book of Genesis. The birth narrative in Matthew contains the formula that Matthew will use throughout his gospel. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord. As we said, fulfilled can be read as to bring to its designed end or to bring to its fullness, its pleroma. Jesus is not challenging Judaism, but he stands within it. He's fulfilling it. He's defining it. He's bringing a coherence that it otherwise lacked. So Matthew, when he says fulfilled, that Jesus is the substance, filling up the scriptures of Israel in a substantially new and unexpected way. But Judaism was expecting that. That's the very nature of the Jewish scriptures. These things are pointing toward the Messiah Who would fulfill them? But Jesus is not moving beyond Torah. He says, do not think in Matthew 5.17 that I came to abolish the law or prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. That's a very different thing. Jesus is upholding. He's bringing to life the law, the Torah. He's bringing it to its designed end. One New Testament scholar, Richard Hayes, describes Matthew's language and imagery as from start to finish soaked in Scripture. And what he means by Scripture, of course, the Hebrew Scriptures. He constantly presupposes the social and symbolic world rendered by the stories, songs, prophecies, laws, and wisdom teachings of Israel's sacred Scriptures. The world of the Hebrew Scriptures is precisely the world occupied by Christ. Matthew's composition, for example, is taking place, as the New Testament is as a whole, within this Torah form, this Jewish form space. As Zetterholm writes, a Jew who came to embrace belief in Jesus as the Messiah could not be said to change one symbolic universe for another, To become a Messiah-believing Jew would rather represent a new orientation within the same symbolic universe. And so Jesus is pictured as filling up the righteousness. This is the way Matthew describes it. Jesus comes to John. John says, oh Lord, I can't baptize you. And Jesus says, let it be so for now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Baptism marks the form, the relinquishing, the self-giving, the humbling, which accomplishes the fullness of righteousness. Baptism is the form righteousness takes, apparently. It's the proper doing, and we need to emphasize it's a doing necessary to inhabit righteousness. Of course, baptism I think is a work. I don't think we need to back down from that. It's something we do. Christian baptism is something that we do. But this doing is not over and against the law, but it is the law's completion. Jesus continually demonstrates his authority through his doing of the law, his baptism, his teaching. Think of the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain. This is not anti-law. This is actually a tightening of the law. His healing ministry is a fulfillment of the picture of that prophet pictured by Isaiah. His forgiving, his dying, his rising. He's filling up the Hebrew Scriptures. And this notion of fullness, of pleroma, it neither goes beyond Torah, nor does it replace Torah. wall. On the contrary, Matthew's concept, the New Testament concept of fulfillment, is this inhabiting of this Jewish space, this Torah space, the Hebrew Scriptures. This is how Jesus fulfills. This is how he makes complete. And I think the Gospel of Matthew is a case in point of what Paul is doing, of what the writers of the New Testament are doing, that it's all fulfillment, the true subject of the Hebrew Scriptures, the true subject of the law, is Jesus. He is assigning these things their settled meaning, their definition. As with the other writers of the New Testament and the church fathers, It's not really that Christ is beginning a new epoch, a new period in history. We're not moving so much from the old to the new or from Jew to Christian. But Christ occupies and has always occupied the subject position and interpretive key of the Hebrew Scriptures. And we interpret Christ through the Hebrew Scriptures. All the first Christians were Jews. We just saw that on the day of Pentecost. To be Christian is to occupy a Jewish sense of time, a Jewish sense of space, and Jewish meaning. Here is the fulfillment of all that.
0: Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth